O enthusiasts of Greek history, O purveyors of Greek civilization, before you embark upon your quest to seek Greek greatness, hear my call. I am an ambassador from the great nation of the Punics, conquerors of Africa and Iberia, masters of gold and silver, owners of the western Mediterranean, sons of the great nation of Tyre, loyal subjects of the descendants of Mago. I come with the herald of our great king, Hannibal the Magonid. I bear the most petrifying Punic propaganda. If you do not heed my pontifications upon this petrifying Punic propaganda, then be prepared to be putrefied under the pediments of the Punics. If you do not heed, we shall engulf you in war. There will be iron and there will be blood. To avoid your ghastly fate, march on to muster at historytellerpodcast.com and enlist with the Punic army on iTunes for this most putrefying and petrifying of pontifications upon the propaganda of the Punics. Or else... Hello, I'm Ryan Stitt, and welcome back to the History of Ancient Greece, Episode 86, Early Astronomy. Astronomia, or astronomy, comes from the Greek words astron, or star, and nomos, or law, so that it literally means the laws of the stars. It is the oldest of the natural sciences. As the earliest civilizations in recorded history, such as the Mesopotamians, Egyptians, and Greeks, among many others, all performed some sort of structured observations of the night sky. Although modern astronomy is now often considered to be synonymous with the diverse field of astrophysics, which is the branch of astronomy concerned with the physical nature of the stars and other celestial bodies, and the application of laws and theories of physics to the interpretation of astronomical observations. In ancient times, though, before the invention of such tools as the telescope, the study of astronomy consisted of only observation and predictions of the motions and phenomena of those celestial objects only visible to the naked eye. This led to the mapping of the positions of the stars and planets, a science now referred to as astrometry, as well as the making of astronomical calendars. As civilizations developed, astronomical observatories were assembled, where systematic records were kept, and ideas on the nature of the universe began to develop. The earliest cultures identified celestial objects with gods and spirits, and they related these objects and their movements to natural phenomena, such as rain, drought, and the changing of the seasons. 
it is generally believed that the first astronomers were priests and that they understood celestial objects and events to be manifestations of the divine. This is why early astronomy is often confused with what we would now call astrology, which is a belief system claiming that human affairs are correlated with the positions of celestial objects. Although the two fields share a common origin, they are now entirely distinct. But that wasn't necessarily the case in antiquity. For example, classical sources frequently use the term Chaldean or Magi for the astronomers of Mesopotamia, who were, in reality, priest scribes specializing in astrology and other forms of divination, as they believed in the reading of omens in the sky as a means to secure good blessings for the state. We talked about the Magi in great detail in episode 80. Although the Mesopotamians believed that the planets were representations of their gods, and so as a result, they gave these planetary gods an important role in their mythology and religion, they also initiated particularly important early developments in mathematical and scientific astronomy that would lay the foundations for later astronomical traditions and many other civilizations, including in Egypt and Greece. For example, the modern practice of dividing a circle into 360 degrees, or an hour into 60 minutes, began with the Mesopotamians, as they used a sexagesimal place value number system, meaning they used a base of 60, which simplified the task of recording very large and very small numbers. The Mesopotamians were also the first to recognize that astronomical phenomena occur routinely at fixed periods, and so they could be predicted using mathematical principles. For example, the Babylonians discovered that lunar and solar eclipses recurred in a repeating cycle known as a saros, which is a period of approximately 18 years. As a result, centuries of Babylonian observations of celestial phenomena are recorded in a series of cuneiform tablets. One in particular lists the first and last visible signs of the planet of Venus over a period of about 21 years, and is the earliest evidence that a planet's movement was recognized as periodic. The Babylonian cuneiform tablets also contain catalogs of stars and constellations, ways for predicting helical risings and the settings of the planets, more on that shortly, the lengths of daylight measured by a water clock or sundial, and intercalculations, which is the insertion of a leap day, week, or month into some years in order to make the calendar sync up with the seasons or moon phases. Similarly, astronomy played a considerable part in Egypt, as several temple books and charts are preserved that record the movements and phases of the sun, moon, and stars. These were important because the Egyptian pharaonic administration relied on well-established calendars to anticipate the flooding of the Nile and to fix the dates of religious festivals. Rituals were required to be able to tell the time during the hours of the night, and monuments such as pyramids and temples were oriented toward certain stars. Like with mathematics, the origins of Greek astronomy are not well documented and therefore are not well understood. Surely, the Minoan and Mycenaean civilizations of the Bronze Age possessed at least a rudimentary understanding of observational astronomy, as they would have needed the Oranioi, or the celestial bodies, to plot their locations when sailing in their vast trade networks. Similarly, as with all agricultural cultures, knowing the seasons was essential for success, and it was the cycles of the celestial bodies that provided a way for one to know when to plant and to harvest. But during the Archaic period, ancient Greece saw not only the return of writing, but also widespread colonization, travel, and the development of trade and commerce throughout the Mediterranean once again. 
And so, like with mathematics, this all spurred the growth of astronomical thinking in ancient Greece, as contact with other civilizations in the Near East, especially Babylon, where astronomical records of natural phenomena had been kept for almost a thousand years at that point, showed that there was some regularity and predictability in the movements of the stars and planets. As we have seen in previous episodes, the adopting of Babylonian and Egyptian knowledge was a common theme for the Greeks who excelled at taking the best ideas of their neighbors and incorporating them into their understanding of the natural world. Ancient astronomers were able to differentiate between stars and planets, as stars, called asteres in Greek, remain relatively fixed in their location throughout the centuries, while planets will move a considerable amount during a relatively short time. And so the name planet comes from the Greek term planetes, meaning wanderer. As ancient astronomers noted how certain asteres planetae, or wandering stars, moved across the sky in relation to the other asteres aplanes, or fixed stars. At this point in time, it was almost universally believed that the Earth was the center of the universe and that all of the planets circled around the Earth, which is known as geocentrism, or a geocentric model of the universe. The reasons for this belief were that from their perspective on Earth, the stars and planets appeared to revolve around them, as well as the apparently common sense belief among astronomers at that time that the Earth was solid and stable, and that it was not moving, but at rest. Because the ancient Greeks did not have telescopes, they only knew of the stars and the five planets that were the closest to the Earth, and so could be seen with the naked eye. Sometimes the sun and the moon are added to make a total of seven. These seven celestial bodies that appeared to move around the Earth were known collectively as the planeton. The five naked eye planets, Mercury, Venus, Mars, Jupiter, and Saturn, would have a significant impact on mythology and religious cosmogony. Those are not only the Latin names for the respective planet that has passed down into our vernacular, but also for the respective god who the planet represented. It is also with this alignment of gods to the planets that we see the Greeks adopting Babylonian astronomical views. For example, Mercury was called Nabu by the Babylonians, after the messenger to the gods in their mythology, since it moves across the sky faster than any other planet. We now know that this is because Mercury is the smallest and innermost planet in the solar system, and so it has the shortest orbit around the sun. Similarly, the ancient Greeks knew the planet as Hermaeon, or Hermes, whose Roman equivalent is Mercury, hence the name. In addition, since the planets often disappear from time to time when they approach the sun during their orbit, sometimes it was difficult for the ancients to identify all five with just the naked eye. However, the ancients were very detailed in recording when and where certain planets were best visible. For example, due to Mercury's proximity to the sun, the planet can only be seen near the western or eastern horizon during the early evening or early morning. But when it is visible, it often appears as a bright star-like object. For this reason, ancient Greeks sometimes called it stillbon, which means the gleaming. Mercury, though, was not quite as bright as Venus, which is considered to be the brightest of the planets. As such, Venus has been a major fixture in observational astronomy, and thus was the first planet to have its motions across the sky recorded, that taking place by the ancient Mesopotamians in the Bronze Age. The Sumerians associated the planet with the goddess Inanna, who was known as Ishtar by the later Akkadians and Babylonians. Although the Mesopotamians recognized Venus as a single celestial object, early Greek astronomers thought that the evening and morning appearances of the planet represented two different celestial objects, calling it Hesperus, or the evening star, when it appeared in the western evening sky, and Phosphoros, or the light bringer, when it appeared in the eastern morning sky.
The Greeks eventually came to recognize that both objects were the same planet, a realization that Pliny the Elder credited to Pythagoras. While Diogenes Laertes argued that Parmenides was responsible for this rediscovery. Regardless, those two traditional names were so entrenched that they continued to be used, which is why the planet was not to be known as Aphrodite by the Greeks. Although the Romans also recognized Venus as a single celestial object, they too continued to designate the morning aspect of Venus as Lucifer and the evening aspect as Vesper, both of which are literal Latin translations of their traditional Greek names. Similarly, Possibly due to its reddish appearance, the Babylonians connected the planet of Mars with the judgment of the fate of the dead, and thus believed it to be Nergal, their god of war. And so the Greeks too connected it with their god of war, Ares. The reddish color of Mars makes it easy to be seen from Earth, especially every couple of years, when it is easily the most visible, as it comes the closest to Earth than any other planet. To the Babylonians, the planet of Jupiter represented their chief god, Marduk. As such, they used Jupiter's roughly 12-year orbit to define the constellations of their zodiac. More on that shortly. Its Greek counterpart is Zeus, and the ancient Greeks called the planet as Phaethon, meaning the shining one, as Jupiter is usually the third brightest object in the night sky, after the moon and Venus. Though at times, Mars can appear brighter than Jupiter due to its location. Finally, Saturn was known to the ancient Greeks as Phanon, which also can be translated as the Shining One. To the Romans, it was known as Saturn, the equivalent of the Greek Titan Kronos, both of whom were patrons of the harvest. It's the furthest away and the least visible with the naked eye, appearing as a bright yellowish point of light, its distance as a sort of in-the-background type of planet and deity, as well as the fact that Kronos was the father of Zeus, may have led to this identification. Above all of these planets, though, stood the sun, which has been an object of veneration in many cultures throughout human history. For example, the sun was central to the Egyptians, who portrayed their god Ra as being carried across the sky in a solar ship, accompanied by lesser gods. And to the Greeks, he was Helios, who was carried by a chariot drawn by fiery horses, as we discussed in episode 82. The apparent path of the sun across the celestial sphere over the course of the year was known as the Heliakos Kuklos, literally meaning the circle of the sun. The concept of the solstices was also well known in the ancient world. The term solstice is derived from the Latin sol, sun, and sistere, to stand still, because this phenomena occurs when the sun reaches its highest or lowest point in the sky and appears to stand still, before reversing direction. This happens two times a year, marking the beginning of summer and winter, and are the longest and shortest days of the year, respectively. The ancient Greeks used the term heliostasio, meaning the standing of the sun. In addition, sometimes ancient authors conflate the heliakos kuklos with the zodiakos kuklos, or the zodiac, which literally means the circle of little animals, since the path of the sun, as well as those of the moon and visible planets, are along the belt of the zodiac. The zodiac is divided into 12 signs, roughly corresponding to the constellations of Aries, Taurus, Gemini, Cancer, Leo, Virgo, Libra, Scorpio, Sagittarius, Capricorn, Aquarius, and Pisces. The name Zodiac thus reflects the prominence of animals and mythological hybrids among the 12 signs. 
The division of the sun's orbit into zodiac signs originated in Babylon as early as the Bronze Age. But it wasn't until the 5th century BC that Babylonian astronomers divided the sun's orbit, spanning one year, into 12 equal signs, essentially to 12 months of 30 days each. Each sign contained 30 degrees of celestial longitude, thus creating the first known celestial coordinate system. In Babylonian astronomical records, a planet's position thus was given in respect to a zodiac sign. For example, planet X is X degrees from zodiac X. Although the modern divisions place the beginning of the zodiac with the sign of Aries when the sun reaches the spring equinox, the Babylonian astronomers fixed the zodiac in relation to stars. Therefore, their divisions did not correspond exactly to where the constellations actually started and ended in the sky, because it would have been irregular. The sun actually passes through at least 13, not 12, Babylonian constellations, because in order to align with the number of months in a year, designers of the system omitted the major constellation of Ophiuchus. Furthermore, changes in the orientation of the Earth's axis of rotation also means that the time of year that the sun is in a given constellation has changed since Babylonian times. The Babylonian star catalogs, though, wouldn't enter Greek astronomy until the 4th century BC. So when we talk about certain constellations in this episode, placing them among the systematic 12 zodiac signs makes it an easy reference point, but it should be understood that this is using a bit of historical anachronism for the sake of clarity. There will be much more to say about the zodiac, though, as well as for astrology when we get to the Hellenistic period, so we will leave that for future episodes. And now, let us take a short break for a word from our sponsors. The History of Ancient Greece is sponsored by the CLNS Media Network, and today's episode is brought to you by Robinhood. Robinhood is an investing app that lets you buy and sell stocks, ETFs, options, and cryptos, all commission-free. They strive to make financial services work for everyone, not just the wealthy. And my favorite part about Robinhood is the design of the app and its ease of use. Thanks to its simple and intuitive, clear design, its data is presented in an easy-to-digest, non-intimidating way for stock market newcomers, like myself, to invest for the first time with true confidence. It's so simple that with their easy-to-understand charts and market data, you can place a trade in just four taps on your smartphone. You learn how to invest as you build up your portfolio by discovering new stocks and track favorite companies with a personalized news feed and custom notifications for price movements so you never miss the right moment to invest. And the best part, Robinhood is giving my listeners a free stock, like Apple, Ford, or Sprint, to help build your portfolio. Sign up at grease.robinhood.com. That's grease.robinhood.com. And now, let us turn our attention back to the ancient Greeks. The Greeks were much more familiar with the night sky than most city dwellers are nowadays. Since there were no street lights, smog, or tall buildings, their nights were filled with stars. Like with the planets, they named the constellations and stars after the gods and characters in their myths, who were believed to have undergone a catasterismos, literally a placing among the stars. In fact, most of the constellations in the Northern Hemisphere today still derive their names from the Greeks, as does the names of many stars, asteroids, and planets. By the time of the 2nd century AD, 48 of the 88 known modern constellations were known by the ancient Greeks and were described systematically by the astronomer Ptolemy in his Almagest. A good many of those that they didn't know weren't able to be seen until the development of the telescope and other technologies. 
Our earliest references to identifiable stars and constellations on the Greek record appear in the 8th and 7th centuries BC in the writings of Homer and Hesiod, whose poems hint at a rudimentary cosmology of an earth that is shaped like a disk and laid flat upon the Titan Oceanus, who surrounds it on all sides. And above the earth is the sky, across which the chariot of the sun god Helios travels back and forth every day. In addition, Homer in his Iliad and Odyssey describes several astronomical phenomena, including solar eclipses, and refers to the following celestial objects. The constellations Bootis, Ursa Major, the Great Bear, Sirius, the Dog Star, and Orion, and the star clusters Hyades and Pleiades. Hesiod in his Works and Days refers to those as well, but also adds the star Arcturus to this list. In the Odyssey, the constellation of Bootis in the northern sky is used as a celestial reference point for navigation and is described as being late setting or slow to set. Although Bootis means herdsman or plowman, literally ox driver, it is not exactly clear who he represents in Greek myth. One popular version says that he was the son of Demeter and he invented the plow and thus was memorialized as a constellation for his ingenuity. And so with this interpretation, the ancient Greeks envisioned the constellation of Bootis as representing a plowman who drives a cart with an oxen, which can be seen in the constellation of Ursa Major, or the Great Bear, as both border each other going left or right. More specifically, an oxen can be seen in the asterism, or group of stars, consisting of Ursa Major's seven bright stars, which is now known as either the Big Dipper or the Plow. Another version relates to the name of Arcturus, which is the brightest star in the constellation of Bootis, and is considered the fourth brightest in the night sky. Its name derives from Arctus, or bear, and Oros, meaning watcher or guardian. And so Arcturus literally means the guardian of the bear. This is because the constellation of Ursa Major, to its right, has been seen to represent a bear by many distinct civilizations, not just the ancient Greeks. In fact, Ursa is Latin for bear. The best-known account of this myth is found in Ovid's Metamorphoses, who details how a vengeful Hera, or Juna, turned the nymph Calypso into a bear so that she would no longer be attractive to her lustful husband Jupiter, or Zeus. Callisto, while in the form of a bear, later encounters her son Arcus, who almost shoots his own mother while out hunting. But to avert the tragedy... Jupiter turns Arcus into a bear too, and puts them both in the sky, forming Ursa Major and Ursa Minor. The constellation was also known as Heliki, or turning, because it turns around the North Pole. Homer in the Odyssey notes that it is the sole constellation that never sinks below the horizon, and bathes in Oceanus's waves, so it too is used as a celestial reference point for navigation. The third and second brightest points of light in the night sky, known as Regal Centaurus in the southern constellation of Centaurus and Canopus in the southern constellation of Carina, respectively, were not visible to the mainland Greeks and Romans, which is why they don't appear in the works of Homer or Hesiod. However, they were visible to the Egyptians, and so they were seen by Eratosthenes and Ptolemy later, both of whom were Greeks observing from their home in Hellenistic and later Roman Alexandria. There will be more on those two in a future episode. Finally, the star system of Sirius, literally meaning glowing or scorching, is the brightest point of light in the night sky, and this was not only seen by the Greeks and Romans, 
But its brightness and location caused ancient astronomers to take note of it around the world when it made its helical rising, which is when a star, or star cluster, returns annually and becomes visible above the eastern horizon. This event for certain stars held great importance in antiquity, as it heralded important events in the calendar year. For example, the helical rising of Sirius signified to the Egyptians the simultaneous beginning of their new year and the annual flooding of the Nile. Owing to the flood's own irregularity, the extreme precision of the star's return, often calculated to July, made it important to the Egyptians, who worshipped it as the goddess Sopdet, and they believed that she guaranteed the fertility of their land. However, the Egyptian calendar lacked leap years, which meant that it got out of sync every four years. The Egyptians, though, continued to note the times of Sirius's annual return, which may have led to the discovery of the 1460-year Sophic cycle, named after Sophus, the Greek name for soap debt, and which influenced the development of the Julian and Alexandrian calendars later. The Greeks connected the arrival of Sirius with the hottest, most uncomfortable part of summer, believing that the return of the brightest star was responsible for bringing heat drought, sudden thunderstorms, lethargy, fever, madness, and just plain bad luck. For example, in the Iliad, when Achilles approaches Troy to fight Hector, Homer illustrates a series of metaphors about the menacing effects that came with the return of Sirius. Quote, Priam saw him first, with his old man's eyes, a single point of light on Troy's dusty plain. Sirius rises late in the dark, liquid sky on summer nights. Star of stars. Orion's dog, they call it. Brightest of all. But an evil portent, bringing heat and fevers to suffering humanity. Achilles' bronze gleamed like this as he ran. End quote. Sirius was seen as being so fearsome that the inhabitants of the island of Chios in the Aegean would offer sacrifices to both Sirius and Zeus to bring them cooling breezes and would await the reappearance of the star in the summer. If it rose clear, it would portend good fortune, but if it was misty or faint, then it foretold or emanated pestilence. Due to its brightness, Sirius would have been noted to twinkle more in the unsettled weather conditions of early summer in the Aegean. To Greek observers, this signified certain emanations, which caused its malignant influence, as it was described as burning or flaming in literature. Anyone suffering its effects was said to be starstruck, or astroboletos. Hesiod, in his works and days, considered the worst and hottest part of the summer to be the days before Sirius returned to the night sky. During this period, Sirius was invisible from the earth, but was apparently understood to still be in the sky augmenting the power of the sun. This effect of the combination of Sirius's bright light with that of the sun's was understood to have an effect on plants, animals, women, and men. Quote, when the artichoke comes into flower, referring to June, and the chattering cicada sits in a tree and pours down his sweet song in full measure from under his wings, and wearisome heat is at its height, then goats are fattest and wine is sweetest. Women are in heat, but men are at their weakest, because Sirius, the dog star, saps the head and the knees, and the flesh is dry because of the heat. End quote. About a century later, the poet Alcius repeated the theme of women becoming aroused and men weakening in the sight of Sirius. 
advising his listeners to sleep their lungs in wine before the arrival of the star, since, quote, women are at their foulest, but men the weakest, since they are parched in head and knees, end quote. And so the period following the helical rising of Sirius for the Greeks became known as the Canades Hemerai, or dog days of summer, a phrase that has been passed down in a modern usage. This dog connection stems from the fact that Sirius is colloquially known as the Kuan, or dog star, because of its prominence in the constellation of Canis Major, or the great dog. As Homer alludes to, this name itself reflects the way that Sirius follows Orion in the night sky, like a dog follows a hunter in the woods. And so, another constellation that Homer and Hesiod name is Orion, after a gigantic, supernaturally strong hunter who was a son of Poseidon. One myth states that Gaia grew so angry at him because he boasted that with his bow he could kill every animal on the planet, and so she sent a scorpion to sting and kill him. This is also given as a reason that the constellations of Scorpius and Orion are never in the sky at the same time. Orion's seven brightest stars form a distinctive hourglass-shaped asterism, or pattern, in the night sky. In the center lie the three stars of what is known as Orion's Belt. According to Cicero's understanding of the constellation, the hunter holds an unidentified animal aloft in his right hand, with his left hand coming down to strike it. Similarly, Homer and Hesiod identify two sets of star clusters, or group of stars, in the Hyades and the Pleiades. Both appear in Taurus, a big and prominent constellation in the northern hemisphere's winter sky, which sits to the northwest of Orion. In Greek myth, the Hyades were the five daughters of Atlas and were half-sisters to the Pleiades and the Hesperides. After the death of their brother, Hyas, in a hunting accident, the Hyades wept so much from their grief that Zeus transformed them into a cluster of stars. And since the Greeks believed that the helical rising and setting of the Hyades star cluster were always attended with rain, this myth provides an etiology for the fact that their name, the Hyades, means rainmakers. According to one tradition, after their father Atlas was condemned to hold up the celestial heavens on his shoulders for eternity, after the Titanomachy, the seven Pleiades sisters were pursued by Orion but were never caught, because Zeus also transformed them into stars. As a result, the constellation of Orion is said to still be pursuing them across the night sky. The Pleiades were said to have been named after their mother, as the daughters of Pleione, though it is probable that their name derives from Pleion, meaning to sail, and Pleione was invented to explain it. This is because of the cluster's importance with their helical rising in determining the start of the sailing season in the Mediterranean Sea. In addition, signs from the natural world, such as helical risings and settings, were used to mark the passage of the seasons, and so served as a guide to the farming year. These signs feature prominently in Hesiod's Works and Days, which is a kind of farmer's almanac in that it reads like an agricultural calendar, indicating to farmers when it was time to perform their seasonal chores by the positions of the constellations. The time for plowing and harvest, for example, was also indicated by the rise of the Pleiades. Quote, when the daughters of Atlas are rising, referring to early May, begin the harvest, and when they are setting, begin your plowing. These stars are hidden for 40 nights and 40 days, but they appear again as the year revolves again, which is when iron, referring to the blade of the plow, must first be sharpened, end quote. Here is a bit of advice from Hesiod when it comes to the Pleiades' heliacal setting, quote, 
And if longing seizes you for sailing the stormy seas, when the Pleiades flee mighty Orion and plunge into the misty deep, and all the gusty winds are raging, then do not keep your ship on the wine-dark sea, but as I bid you, remember to work the land." End quote. The Pleiades would flee mighty Orion and plunge into the misty deep, as they said in the west, which they would begin to do just before dawn during October-November. A good time of the year to lay up your ship after the fine summer weather and remember to work the land, as Hesiod puts it. That's because in Mediterranean agriculture, the autumn is the time to plow and sow. Similarly, the moment to harvest grapes coincided with the appearance of particular stars. Quote, When Orion and Sirius, the dog star, are in the middle of the sky, and rosy-fingered dawn sees Arcturus, referring to mid-September, then cut off all the grapes and bring them home. End quote. Hesiod also uses changes in animal behavior as an indicator of the changing seasons. Quote, when the house carrier, meaning a snail, leaves the ground and climbs up the plants, referring to mid-bay, fleeing the Pleiades, then is not the time to dig vineyards, but to sharpen your sickles and rouse your slaves. End quote. These are just some examples from Hesiod, who provides us with one of the earliest star calendars. Most of the stars are coordinated with the rising and setting of the sun. Some disappear into Oceanus, from the viewpoint of the Greeks, while others are always visible. At certain times of the year, certain stars will rise or set at sunrise or sunset. It seems that the star-based calendar that Hesiod was using was fairly accurate for its time, though, and he even has received top marks for the precision of his time-reckoning code and for his observation of the natural world by the early 20th century archaeoastronomer Antony Aveni. Quote, Hesiod's calendar codifies the association of celestial rhythms with the biorhythms present in all living things since their beginning. His scheme is intricate and rich in detail in its predictive power, and his astronomic timings and cross-checks are as accurate as any time-marking scheme, using these events that can be written down. End quote. But even as the Greek literary tradition began to communicate the knowledge of the stars, there were other threads of astronomical speculation in play. As we have seen, speculation about the cosmos was common throughout pre-Socratic philosophy, with a lot of diversity of thought amongst them. In this endeavor, the work of the Greek philosophers is considered to be a major phase in the history of astronomy. Hand in hand with mathematics and philosophy, astronomy was taken a step further in Greece beginning in the 6th century BC, as the natural philosophers all attempted to build a model of the universe that could account for these astronomical observations. They attempted to develop scientific models that not only would explain what had been observed, but would predict future observations. They not only anticipated many ideas of modern astronomy, but also some of their ideas endured for around two millennia. Unfortunately, our knowledge of Greek astronomical thought before the 4th century BC is very incomplete. We have just a few surviving writings, and most of what we know are references and comments from Aristotle, which are mostly opinions that he is about to criticize, as well as even later sources in the Hellenistic and Roman periods. So with that caveat out of the way, let's turn our attention to the pre-Socratics. As we discussed in episode 20, the earliest Greek natural philosophers that we know of lived in Miletus in the 6th century BC. On account of its cultural contact with Lydia and its location via the trade route to the Near East, Miletus would have been a natural hub for information, especially knowledge of mathematics and astronomy from Babylon. 
But what separated the Milesians and the rest of the Greek natural philosophers from the Babylonians is that they were the first to abandon supernatural or religious explanations for natural phenomena and instead sought purely physical causes. They believed that the phenomena of nature were neither random nor arbitrary. The universe, or the totality of things, they named the cosmos because this word meant an orderly arrangement that is beautiful, hence our word cosmetic. The cosmos, perceived as lovely because it was ordered, encompassed not only the motions of the heavenly bodies, but also everything else, such as the weather, the growth of plants and animals, human health and psychology, and so forth. Early ideas about the motions of the planets were formed, and the structure of the cosmos and the nature of the sun, moon, and the earth and the universe were explored philosophically. Generally speaking, the earth was either shaped like a flat disk or a sphere and was at the center of the universe. In almost all models, some sort of sphere or hemisphere represented the heavens. One of Thales' core beliefs was that water was the arche, or principal substance, from which all things began, because it could be transformed into both gas and solid forms. And so all things either originated in or are constituted by water. Possibly because of this belief, he also concluded that the earth was disc-like and floated in and is surrounded on all sides by water, like a piece of wood in a river, which is much like Homer had portrayed in his poems with the Titan Oceanus. Thales, though, was likely offering a hypothesis to explain the puzzling phenomena of earthquakes, which, as we have seen, were a problem in the Aegean region. If the earth floats in water, waves thus would cause earthquakes. Anaximander had a somewhat different idea, though, as he believed that instead of resting on water, as Thales had believed, the earth was cylindrical in shape and was suspended and immobile at the center of an infinite cosmos held up by nothing, a possible early theory of gravity. Anaximander also attempted to describe the mechanics of celestial bodies in relation to the earth and was the first to determine quantitatively the size of the known planets and the distance between them. In doing so, he proposed that the sun is 20 to 30 times larger than the earth, but is comparable in shape. In his cosmology, both the sun and the moon are circular, open vents in rings of fire, enclosed in tubes of condensed air. These rings constitute the rims of rotating chariot-like wheels, pivoting around the earth at their center. The fixed stars are also open vents in these wheel rims, but there are so many such wheels for the stars that their adjacent rims all together form a continuous spherical shell encompassing the earth. All of these wheel rims had originally been formed out of an original sphere of fire that wholly encompassed the earth, which had disintegrated into many individual rings. In other words, in Anaximander's cosmogony, in the beginning was a sphere which has an arbitrarily large radius and is concentric to the Earth, meaning it shares the same axis. Celestial rings were formed out of this sphere, and from some of these, the sphere of the stars was composed. As viewed from the Earth, the ring of the sun was the highest, that of the moon was lower, and the sphere of the stars was lowest. And so Anaximander introduced the earliest ideas of celestial spheres and rings into Greek astronomy. Like Thales, Anaximenes believed that the Earth was flat and floated, but he thought that it floated on air, not water, on account of the Earth's width. He held that the Earth was formed first, and vapors rising above the Earth became flames, and some of the flames became the celestial bodies, which had the same shape as the Earth. 
And so Anaximenes held that the stars, sun, moon, and planets are all made out of fire. He also believed that the moon receives light from the sun and that eclipses of the sun and moon are due to natural causes. He would be partially right here, though he didn't identify what those natural causes were. The word eclipse is derived from the Greek noun eclepsis, which means the abandonment, the downfall, or the darkening of a heavenly body. The term eclipse is most often used to describe either a solar eclipse, when the moon's shadow crosses the Earth's surface, or a lunar eclipse, when the moon moves into the Earth's shadow. And so Anaximenes gets it wrong when he says that apart from the stars that are visible to the naked eye, there are others that cause eclipses of the moon. Anaximenes also extended Anaximander's cosmological model by saying that the sun, moon, and planets were disks on the hemisphere suspended above the earth. But unlike Anaximander, he relegated the fixed stars to the region most distant from the earth. And while the fixed stars are carried around in a complete circle by the sphere of the stars, the sun, moon, and planets do not revolve under the earth between setting and rising again like the stars do, but are merely obscured by higher parts of the earth as they circle around and become more distant. In this endeavor, Anaximenes likened the motion of the sun and the other celestial bodies around the earth to the way that a hat may be turned laterally around the head. The most enduring feature of Anaximenes' cosmos was its conception of the stars being fixed on a sphere as in a rigid frame, which became a fundamental principle of cosmology all the way down to Copernicus and Kepler about 2,000 years later. As we enter the 5th century BC, some natural philosophers still believed that the Earth was flat. For example, Anaxagoras thought a flat Earth floated with support by strong air underneath it, and disturbances in this air sometimes caused earthquakes. Democritus too believed that the Earth was flat, and the heavens cover it like a lid. Anaxagoras also gave a number of novel scientific accounts of natural phenomena, including the claims that the sun was not a deity, but rather a white, hot, fiery mass of stone, a little larger than the Peloponnese, and that the heavenly bodies, such as the stars, were masses of stone torn from the earth and ignited by rapid rotation. He believed that the moon, because it is made of earth and has plains and ravines on it, has no light of its own, but takes it from the sun. Although the moon and earth are made of different substances, moonlight consists of mostly sunlight, with little light from the earth, reflected from the parts of the moon's surface where the sun's light strikes. He also thought that a rainbow was a reflection of the sun. In this belief, he was partially correct, as we now know that rainbows are caused by the refraction and dispersion of the sun's light by rain or other water droplets in the atmosphere. Anaxagoras, though, was the first to give a correct physical explanation of eclipses, saying that eclipses of the moon occur because it is screened by the earth, and those of the sun because of screening by the moon. Furthermore, Democritus too was the first to posit that what we refer to as the Milky Way was the light of stars reaching our perception, and that the universe may in fact be a multiverse with other planets sustaining life, a theory which physicists today are increasingly recognizing as mathematically probable. Hippocrates of Chios, who was primarily known as a geometer, also tried to explain the phenomena of the Milky Way, as well as that of comets. But his ideas have not been handed down very clearly. It seems, though, that he thought both were optical illusions, as the result of refraction of solar light by moisture from a supposed planet near the sun and the stars. The fact that Hippocrates thought that light rays originate in our eyes, instead of in the object that is seen, adds to the unfamiliar character of his ideas. 
Regardless, the Galaxios Kuklos, or the Milky Circle, which we know better as the Milky Way from the Latin Via Lactea, was and still is visible from Earth as a hazy band of white light arching across the night sky. According to myth, this was formed when the infant Heracles suckled on the breast of his stepmother Hera, but his superhuman jaw bit down on her nipple so hard, causing her so much pain, that she pulled him off and in the process she sprayed her milk into the night sky, forming the Milky Way. As for comets, they have been observed for thousands of years. It comes from the Greek word kometis, which literally means the one wearing long hair, because as a comet, which is originally icy, passes close to the sun, it warms and begins to release gas. This produces a visible atmosphere and sometimes a tail of gas, which apparently appears as if it were a head full of long hair. It is believed that arguably the most famous comet, that being Halley's Comet, may have been observed as early as 467 BC, because a comet was recorded in that year, and its timing, location, duration, and associated meteor shower all suggest that it was Halley. According to Pliny the Elder, a meteorite that year that fell in the town of Aegospotami in Thrace was brown in color and the size of a wagon load. In addition, Anaxagoras's observations of the fall of meteorites led him to make a putative prediction of the impact of a meteorite in 467 BC. These are also likely from Halley's Comet. Regardless, the first certain appearance would come in the 3rd century BC. Before Anaxagoras and Democritus, though, there seems to have been some precursory beliefs amongst the intellectuals that the Earth was not flat. For example, Xenophanes claimed that the Earth below us is infinite, that it has pushed its roots to infinity, seeming to make him the first to take the stance that the Earth wasn't flat, though he doesn't provide a shape. Both Pythagoras and his younger contemporary Parmenides did, though, as they both are credited as the first Greeks to recognize that the Earth was spherical. But this idea was probably founded more on mystic reasons rather than scientific ones. Still, the Pythagoreans found conclusive evidence in favor of a spherical Earth after it was discovered that the moon shines by reflecting light, and the right explanation for eclipses was found by Anaxagoras. In the process, the Earth's shadow on the moon's surface suggested that the shape of our planet was spherical. It is likely from the work of the Pythagoreans that Empedocles also believed that the Earth was spherical, and this belief would become an integral part of all Greek cosmological thinking afterwards. In fact, by the end of the 5th century BC, this fact of a spherical Earth, and not a flat Earth, was universally accepted amongst the Greek intellectuals. Also, a more detailed description about the cosmos, stars, sun, moon, and the earth can be found in the Orphic Mysteries, which dates back to the end of the 5th century BC, and it is probably even older. Within the lyrics of the Orphic poems, we can find remarkable information, such as that the earth is round, it has an axis, and it moves around it in one day, and it moves around it in one day, it has three climate zones, and the sun magnetizes the stars and planets. Now that we have a spherical Earth, the next step is to orient ourselves better in the solar system, from a geocentric model of the universe to a heliocentric one. Unfortunately, that would not come about for quite some time, but Philolaus, one of the most prominent figures in Pythagoreanism, is seen as a sort of precursor to Copernicus in moving the Earth from the center of the cosmos and making it just a planet. Like with most Pythagoreans, the various reports about Philolaus's life are scattered amongst the writings of much later writers, and so are of dubious value in reconstructing his life. 
He is believed to have been born around 470 BC and has been variously reported as being from Croton, Tarentum, or Metapontum, all in Magna Graecia and all places that Pythagoras was said to have lived, though it is most likely that he came from Croton. According to tradition, he was the pupil of Arisas, who in the mid-5th century BC was the head of a Pythagorean school, probably the one at Croton. If that is the case then, both Arisas and Philolaus probably were the two Pythagoreans who managed to flee Croton alive after the second burning of the Pythagorean meeting place, around 454 BC, by those people who were openly hostile to Pythagoreanism, which we described last episode. Regardless, Arisas' fate is unknown, but Philolaus eventually made his way to the Greek mainland, and according to Plato in his dialogue, The Phaedo, he became the instructor of Simeus and Cabes at Thebes, both of whom would go on to become disciples of Socrates. According to Diogenes Laertes, shortly after the death of Socrates, Plato traveled to Italy where he met with Philolaus and one of his pupils, Eurytus. But arguably, his most famous student was Archytas, who was reputed to have been the founder of mathematical mechanics, as well as a good friend of Plato. We will get to Archytas soon enough in a future episode. As to Philaeus' death, though, Diogenes Laertes reports a dubious story that he was put to death at Croton around 385 BC on account of being suspected of wanting to be a tyrant. Some scholars have labeled Philolaus as being one of the three most prominent figures in the early Pythagorean tradition, the other two being Pythagoras, obviously, and Hippasus. Others have conjectured that he was the first to commit Pythagorean doctrine or writing. As for his own writings, Diogenes Laertes says that Philolaus composed one treatise divided into three books. Plato is said to have procured a copy of this book, and later sources claim that Plato used it to compose much of his Timaeus. Unfortunately, we only have snippets of Philolaus' specific take on Pythagorean philosophy, with the caveat, as we mentioned in episode 20 and last episode, that it is hard to distinguish between what was originally thought by Pythagoras and what would be expanded upon by his successors. Regardless of whether it can be attributed to Philolaus, scholars do agree that what has been ascribed to him was at least written in the 5th century BC. With those caveats being said, Philolaus argued that the foundation of everything in the cosmos is fitted together by that which is limiting and that which is limitless, all of which combine together in harmony. The center of the universe, according to Philolaus, was the number one, which equated to the unity of monism, as we discussed last episode. Philolaus called the number one as an even-odd, because it was able to generate both even and odd numbers. When one was added to an odd number, it produced an even number, and when added to an even number, it produced an odd number. Philolaus further reasoned that the fitting together of the earth and the universe corresponded to the construction of the number one out of the even and the odd. Pythagorean philosophers believed that the even was unlimited and the odd was limited. For the Pythagoreans, mathematics expressed the underlying nature of the universe, and so the Pythagoreans would be the first to put each planet on a circular path, each in some harmonic ratio with one or more of the others. They reasoned that stars must produce a sound because they were large, swiftly moving bodies. The Pythagoreans also determined that stars revolved at distances and speeds that were proportional to each other. They reasoned that because of this numerical proportion, the revolution of the stars produced a harmonic sound. Philolaus did away with the ideas of fixed direction in space, and instead developed one of the first, if not the originating theory, of a non-geocentric view of the universe. 
meaning that the Earth was not at the center, but was instead just a planet. Both Aristotle and Strabaeus provide us with insight into this unique Pythagorean astronomical system. Philolaeus's new way of thinking quite literally revolved around a hypothetical, unseen astronomical object he called the Dios Philaki that was in the middle of the universe. It has been commonly translated as a central fire, but it was also called the Watchtower of Zeus or the Hearth Altar of the Universe. In Philaeus's system, a sphere of the fixed stars, the five planets, the sun, the moon, and the earth all moved around this central fire. The earth does its revolution in a 24-hour cycle. The five known planets also revolved around it, as well as the moon in a month's time and the sun in a year's time. It was the Earth's speedy travel past the slower-moving Sun that resulted in the appearance on Earth of the Sun rising and setting. The whole world is warmed and lit from that fire, making it the hearth of the universe. We never see the fire, though, because we live on the side of the Earth which is always turned away from it. This is because, although the Pythagoreans knew that the motion of the Sun around the Earth was only apparent, they did not discover the revolution of the Earth on its axis. Rather than there being two separate fiery heavenly bodies in this system, Philolaeus may have believed that the sun was a mirror, reflecting the heat and light of the central fire. Furthermore, although there is no explicit statement about the shape of the earth in Philolaeus' system, he probably believed that the earth was round since that was the prevalent Pythagorean view by this time. According to Aristotle in his Metaphysics, Philolaeus added a tenth unseen body, which he called Antikthon, or counter-Earth, whose function was to explain eclipses of the moon and their frequency, and because without it, there would be only nine revolving bodies, and the Pythagorean number theory required a tenth, which they regarded as the perfect number, as we discussed last episode. Aristotle describes it as being another Earth, so scholars have inferred that it must be similar in size, shape, and constitution to the Earth. However, some scholars think that Aristotle, who was a critic of the Pythagoreans, was satirizing Philolaeus' ideas here with this remark. In reality, Philolaeus' ideas predated the idea of spheres by hundreds of years. Nearly 2,000 years later, Nicholas Copernicus, in his seminal work on the heliocentric, or solar system, theory of the universe, would mention that Philolaeus already knew about the Earth's revolution around a central fire though he mistakenly attributed it to something other than the sun, whereas Johannes Kepler believed that Philaeus' central fire was the sun, but that the Pythagoreans felt the need to hide that teaching from non-believers. Regardless, although his concepts of a central fire distinct from the sun and a non-existent counter-earth were erroneous, the Pythagorean astronomical system contained the insight that the apparent motion of the heavenly bodies was in large part due to the real motion of the observer. How much of the system was intended to explain observed phenomena, and how much was based on myth and religion is disputed, though. And so it seems that the conclusion of the Pythagoreans, that the universe is not geocentric, was not based on empirical observation. Instead, as Aristotle noted, the Pythagorean view of the astronomical system was likely grounded in a fundamental reflection on the value of individual things, and the hierarchical and harmonious order of the universe. On the last episode, we discussed Onopitus of Chios and his accomplishments as a geometer. Well, he was also a fairly noteworthy astronomer, though his main accomplishments in the field of astronomy unsurprisingly involved geometry. 
He was successfully able to calculate the angle between the plane of the celestial equator and the zodiac to be 24 degrees. In effect, this amounted to him measuring the inclination of the Earth's axis. Onopitus' findings here would remain the standard value for two centuries until Eratosthenes would measure it with slightly greater precision. Onopitus also determined a value for the Megas Heniatos, or the Great Year. Since the celestial objects all have diverse motions, the Great Year was considered to be completed when the Sun, Moon, and five planets all finished their courses and have returned to the same positions relative to one another. The length of this period was hotly debated in antiquity, though. As the relative positions of the sun and moon repeat themselves after each great year, ancient astronomers believe that this would offer a means to predict solar and lunar eclipses. In actual practice, though, this is only approximately true, because the ratio of the length of the year and that of the month does not exactly match any simple mathematical fraction. For example, Onipitus put the great year at every 59 years, corresponding to 730 months. This was a good approximation, but not a perfect one, since 59 years are equal to 21,550.1 days, while 730 months equal 21,557.3 days. The difference, therefore, amounts to 7.2 days. In addition, the lunar orbit is not stagnant, and in fact it varies continuously. Before Onopitus, a great year of eight solar years was in use, which equals about 99 months. Shortly after Onopitus, in 432 BC, Meton and Euctemon discovered a better value. Meton was a Greek mathematician, astronomer, geometer, and engineer who lived in Athens in the 5th century BC. As we alluded to in the last episode, Meton appears briefly as a character in Aristophanes' play, The Birds. He comes on stage, carrying surveying instruments, and is described as a geometer, who is perplexed at the squaring of the circle problem. However, he is best known for his astronomical calculations, involving the eponymous 19-year Metonic cycle, which he introduced in 432 BC into the lunisolar Attic calendar. Also called the Metonic calendar, it incorporates knowledge that 19 solar years and 235 lunar months are very near equal. And so, lunar periods often, but not unconditionally, repeat on the same day of the year as 19 years previously. This system was based on calculations made by Meton using his own observations of the summer solstice in 432 BC. Meton's observations were made in collaboration with Euctemon, about whom nothing else is known. The Greek astronomer Calippus of the late 4th century BC refined the Metonic cycle, proposing what is now termed the Calippic cycle, which is 76 years long, or four Metonic cycles. The world's oldest known astronomical calculator, the Antikythera mechanism, dating to the 2nd century BC, performs calculations based on both the Metonic and Calippic calendar cycles, with separate dials for each. We will discuss Calippus and the Antikythera mechanism in more detail in future episodes. According to Ptolemy, a 2nd century AD astronomer in Alexandria, a stella erected in Athens contained a record of Meton's astronomical observations, as well as a description of the Metonic cycle. None of Meton's work survived, though, but the foundations of his observatory in Athens are still visible today, just behind the podium of the Peninx Hill. Meton also found the dates of equinoxes and solstices by observing sunrises from his observatory. 
From that point of observation, during the summer solstice, the sunrise was in line with the local hill of Mount Licabetos, while six months later, during the winter solstice, the sunrise occurs over the highbrow of Mount Hymetos in the southeast. So for Meton's observatory, the sun appears to move along a 60-degree arc between these two points on the horizon every six months. And the bisection of this arc lies in line with the Acropolis. These topological features are important because the summer solstice was the point in time from which the Athenians measured the start of their calendar years. As the first month of the new year, that being Hecatombion, began with the first new moon after the summer solstice. We will leave our examination of Greek astronomy there with Meton, for now. But do not fret, there will be quite a bit to say about astronomy once we get into the 4th century BC and beyond. The foundations, though, have been set, as the 6th and 5th centuries BC were a time of huge intellectual accomplishments for the ancient Greeks. As we have seen, natural philosophers from Thales onwards had tried to understand the world and were interested in the subjects that we now call physics, mathematics, astronomy, prehistory, meteorology, and so forth. The curious thing, though, is that after that fascinating start, progress was one-sided, as great advances were made in the theoretical disciplines of physics, mathematics, astronomy, and philosophy, but far fewer in the applied sciences, like chemistry, and virtually none in technology. That is because the Greeks did not advance either to scientific laws or to practical application of these theories and technology. The beauty and harmony that the Pythagoreans found in mathematics was so powerful that Greek science in general was eventually contaminated with a strong mathematical bias. In other words, the Greeks came to believe that deductive reasoning, which was incredibly successful in mathematics, was also the only acceptable way of attaining knowledge in every other discipline. Observation was undervalued, deduction was made king, and Greek scientific knowledge was led up a blind alley in virtually every branch other than the exact sciences. This overestimation of mathematics can be seen in a quote from Galen in his treatise called On the Doctrines of Hippocrates and Plato. Quote, Whereas time causes grief and other emotions to alter and cease, when has the mere passage of time ever persuaded anyone that he has had enough of twice two or four, or all radii of a circle are equal, and made him change his mind about such beliefs and give them up? End quote. There seems to have been three reasons for this. First, they relied more on the mind than the senses, because the senses could be deceived. A stick in the water looks bent because it is in the mind that corrects what the eye sees. Of course, they lacked instruments to support and improve the senses, such as telescopes, microscopes, test tubes, and so forth. The best that they could do was to use analogy, as a mental process of comparison, regarding visible objects for clues to invisible ones. But that leads only to probability, not certainty, as the analogy and the comparison may be wrong. So the evidence of the senses was unsatisfactory, but logic and mathematics were different. By these methods, truth and certainty could be reached. For example, you can prove that the angles at the base of an isosceles triangle are equal, and that is true and there is no doubt about it. The second reason for the lack of development in science was the Greeks' preference for abstract theory rather than practical activity. Their aim was to know, not to do or change or control. This reluctance to be involved in practicalities may be due to the fact that most Greek philosophers came from the upper classes. They therefore reflect aristocratic values. Trade and crafts were for the lower classes, after all, while the upper classes occupied themselves only with war, diplomacy, poetry, and oratory. 
As a result, inventions were rare after 500 BC, and despite the immense experience of craftsmen in bronze casting and pottery, the philosophers did not apply their thinking to chemistry, and so no theoretical chemistry was ever developed. Thirdly, in the late 5th century BC, Greek thinking moved decisively away from the natural world, towards a focus on human beings. As the proper study of man was now considered to be man, both as an individual and as a member of society. So the sophists, and particularly Socrates, were more concerned about virtue, justice, piety, friendship, and education, and not so much with science. And this will be where we turn our attention to next. So join me next time on the History of Ancient Greece, Episode 87, The Sophists. 